Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Today's episode is brought to you by Beyond Breast Cancer, Reclaiming Your Health and Vitality Post-Treatment. This is my group program that I am going to be starting in July. It's actually a program that is going to bring together women who are looking at recovery from breast cancer and interested in learning more about natural and alternative healing methods that lay a foundation to establish a long-term recovery plan. So in this, we're going to look at breast cancer recovery from an integrative standpoint and what we know about natural healing. And we're also going to take a look at mind-body healing and dealing with some of the emotional ramifications of diagnosis and treatment, because that's an area that uh, I don't think is always well understood. And I really believe that women are dealing with varying levels of stress, sometimes post-traumatic stress that really need to be addressed in very specific ways. And that's going to be very much a part of this group program. The program is going to be online. It's going to be something that you can access from the comfort of your own home, but is really going to be focused on building a community. It's going to be a private group of women who choose to be part of the group. And I really hope you'll consider reaching out to me if you have any interest or feel like this will support you in your healing. You can reach me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. And my website is MindBodyNutritionRN.com. So on with today's show. I'm very excited today to have a leader in the field of integrative cancer care as our guest, Dr. Nasha Winters. Spent some time uh, following uh, Dr. Winters and talking to her for a while, and I have to say that I'm going to start the show by uh, giving you some information from her bio, but that's what's on paper and does not begin to reflect what's in her heart and what is really driving her to be a leading voice and advocate for women who are going through breast cancer treatment and recovery. Dr. Nasha Winters is the founder, CEO, and visionary of Optimal Terrain Consulting. She is a nationally board-certified naturopathic doctor, licensed acupuncturist, and a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. She lectures all over the world training physicians in the application of mistletoe therapy and consulting with researchers on projects involving immune modulation via mistletoe, hypothermia, and specifically the ketogenic diet used therapeutically. She lives in Durango, Colorado. She has recently published a wonderful comprehensive book that I think will benefit patients and practitioners alike. It is called Metabolic Approach to Cancer. She co-authored this with Jess Higgins Kelly. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, some of her guiding principles in the book, and really give you some key points that you can use and take forward for yourself. So, Dr. Winters, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I wish we were recording our pre-recording because we had a great conversation. <laughs> we'll have to recreate some of that. <laughs> I, maybe, maybe I should include on the podcast, here's the official podcast and here are the outtakes. <laughs> exactly. I like it. I like I, it. 
think about that. Um, so, so anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. And you now, as I said, uh, Dr. Winters has recently published a book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And I definitely want to spend some time, uh, she talks about the 10 essential terrains that we need to look at in, in terms of uh, looking at cancer as a metabolic process. Actually, the thing that I want to start off with is um, it's just amazing to me as a functional medicine practitioner in this day and age, we're even arguing that cancer is a metabolic process. I mean, e even traditional oncologists who are telling their patients that their diet and lifestyle does not matter, they're basically saying, I don't know what they're saying, but you know that flies in the face of everything that we've learned, particularly in the last 20 years about these characteristics of cancer, we're understanding so much more, which is driving pharmaceutical approaches like aromatase inhibitors, but that same understanding of metabolic process isn't transferring over to other things that you and I talk about. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and your experience in trying to get this concept of metabolic process out to patients and doctors. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's a that's a mouthful um, right there. But you're it's it's funny when I was going through my uh, my early stages of my diagnosis and I started looking through the research that was out there at that time. I was involved. I worked went to a very small liberal arts school that did not have a very big funding for a really good library. So when I started looking for data on my Cancer and what cancer was altogether. I was in pre-med, so I was interested in the science behind it. I actually stumbled upon old data, old literature based on Otto Warburg's work from the 1920s, who later won a Nobel Prize around medicine and specifically to understanding the metabolic mitochondrial um, function that is basically what he was noting was the precursor process of a cancering process. So that made the most sense to me of everything I was reading at that time, because at that time, we've gone through several theories of cancer, um, and you've been at this long enough <laughs> as well, Deborah, to know, yeah. you know, that it's like we, we were like, oh, here's the trophoblastic theory, which was early on information, which we now today can go, oh, that was probably referring to stem cells, which didn't have the ability to know what that was then until the science caught up. Then we flash forward it to, at the time of Otto Warburg's um, interest in studies, we started more moving from the terrain into the DNA. That's when Watson and Crick's work started to come about, and that's where we kind of took a deep dive into the genetic cause of everything, right? right? And we have stayed, in fact, that's still where we're really kind of embedded, still in that ideology that the gene is the problem, or these particular proteins or these particular targets are the problem, and they're the cause of the cancering process. And so we still are putting all of our financial monies in there. When I was in medical school, cancer was known as the two-hit theory, which was the idea that you have this genetic hiccup, this problem in your genes, not the epigenome, which we have some impact to change, but your genes that are basically static things you can't change, that you have that there. And then suddenly a big life event, a big surgery and injury and accident comes along and kind of wakes up those genes to express terribly. And that was kind of what they were believing then. It still came down to a genetic ideology. Right. And the only way of treating it was a cytotoxic reductive therapy um, with the three options of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. Later, we graduated a little bit up into some targeted therapies, hormone blockade therapies. Um, and today we're starting to get more into the immunologic therapies, but they're still coming 
coming at that single target, you know, single protein, single target, single treatment approach, which one doctor I heard at a conference I just attended at Hopkins, golly, back in November or December, said if we keep waiting on that one target, one protein, one treatment approach, it'll be 20 years before we find one single good treatment because it's such a slow go of that genetic ideology. And when it really comes down to it, genes are five to 10% maximum of the whole process. And so I am telling you that story of like medicine, if you will, around cancer to understand that at a time when I was diagnosed and given a not very good life uh, survival rate, I needed to explore and understand my body. How I personally survive on this planet is with knowledge, with information. And so I'm a seeker of information. I'm always adding to that pot of knowledge within myself. And so at that time, what made sense to me was I have this body, I have this system that I can impact with everything from the food I put into my system, the herbs, the nutrients, the supplements, from the toxicants I take out of my system, all the way down to the people I choose to hang out with and the the stressors I choose to put myself in front of, whether it was at that time pre-med, um, being so poor, I was living in a, in a VW bus for a period of time, living in a TP. Mm-hmm years I lived in a teepee, yeah. um, right? And so these were the things like how, you know, I was paying for my medical bills was working massive amounts of hours waiting tables and working at detox and working it as a nursing assistant. And it, I mean, I worked a million jobs while going to pre- getting my pre-med degrees. I was learning along the way at what made my body feel better, what made my body feel worse. And so fast forward more than a quarter century, I've learned that within myself and I've learned that to apply it to thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. And I've learned that we don't have to guess along the way because where I started to find out that we could fine tune things was with looking at the physiology, which goes into certain testing, certain metabolic testing, et cetera. What has happened is most of the treatments we do today focus very much on the tumor. And I realized at a very young age and and a very early experience that if I simply focused on the tumor, I would get nowhere. And so I thought, well, what I do have control over, because no one wanted to even give me chemotherapy at that time, was what is going on around the tumor. Thanks to people like Mina Bissell, a world-famous oncology researcher, 35 or so years into the making, she started doing studies around the extracellular matrix. So what was going on around the cells? What was happening in the cytoplasm? What was happening outside of the actual tumor cell? And that's where she started to realize in her research, as a conventional oncology researcher, medium those cells are grown in is what is going to inform how that cell behaves. So she could literally change the medium that those cells were grown in and make those cells more actively cancering or proliferating or create some dormancy so they stop um, you know, growing or even die. So apoptosis. Right. So she started getting really interested in that and her work is amazing. I tell people, Google her, think Bissell like the vacuum cleaner. Right. Um, and then people that came along a little bit later in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, Dr. Thomas Seafried and his work and his research led to the book that came out in 2011, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. That was like this moment in reading his book. I thought, my God, here's someone talking about what I have been living and experiencing in myself for all of these years and with my patients, but there was no place for people to go. Like I would tell my concepts to people and they just thought I was batshit crazy. Excuse <laughs> me if I can say that. Um, you know, like, loving way possible. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, so, but that, but that being said, is like all, the things I was saying. It was, no, it was no, there was no place for it to be found out unless you went digging deep in the research and deep right. in the literature and even knew what to ask. So, 
when his book came out, it created kind of a, a system, a root system that allowed us to start communicating and having a common shared language around this. But it was really just building on some old data, some old research that got buried in the 1920s and 30s and definitely in the 50s and beyond. So these are the things that happened. And then, of course, Travis Christofferson's book that came out shortly after that, which I say is sort of like the Cliff's Notes version of Dr. Seafried's book. Right. Um, it was really helpful to articulate to the masses, to the general population, around this metabolic process of the body. So we are finally getting into the research of knowing that what is happening around the tumor and the tumor cell is actually far more important than what's happening in the tumor and the tumor cell itself, and that we have more ability to change that res uh, the tumor response to conventional therapies and to non-conventional therapies depending on what we feed that medium, depending on what we put into the system. So that's a very long-winded answer, but I wanted people to understand that it's rooted in a long, I mean, the 1800s is when we started talking about the trophoblastic theories, and then we kind of buried that, and then the Warburg theories, and then we buried that, and then the DNA theories, and then we're coming full circle. It's like, we don't have to throw out any of these ideas. We want to put them all together and build on them and understand them at the deeper level. Well, as I, I think is becoming my mantra for <laughs> my listeners, is that um, all too often, and it doesn't really matter, I'm not talking about just traditional doctors, because I'm not anti-medicine, but it, you get this from a lot of alternative practitioners and Google sources where it's treated as an either-or decision. Yeah. And it's yeah. not. And that's what you and I are talking about. What I find to be interesting in perspective, just because I'm of an age and I've spent my life in medicine, what we understand about... Um, the hallmarks? Uh -huh. the hallmarks, yeah. Um, I always forget that word. So <laughs> hallmarks of cancer was really, you know, replanted in 2000. Our understanding of genetics and what impacts our genetic epigenetics separate from cancer just in general has really come to light in the last 20 or 30 years but wasn't known before that our understanding of medications pharmacology of uh, the whole world of psychotropics has like changed in the last 20 years so i think in many ways and yet the principles that we're talking about chemo radiation and surgery these are like practices that were established in 1950s. And I, I just find it really interesting that in many ways, those practices are not updated with our current understanding of medicine and physiology and genetics and nutrition. You know, what I'm always saying is it's, it, it's not an either or. I don't think many people in the throes of a cancer diagnosis are ready to throw out yeah. what we know is given to treat active cancer. But I think what you're talking about is, is talk about the environment. I, I think it's more helpful to look at it as a, as a spectrum. There's before, there's acute care, there's what you do after. I'm very concerned with recovery. The time in recovery mm -hmm. from not only cancer, but treatment is a time to really support your body. It just seems like not only is it either or, but, but sometimes I think this, this week something came out about Angelina Jolie's doctor wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about many of the things that we talk about. And many women and practitioners react with anger, feeling like saying that nutrition and all these things matter is blaming them for getting sick, which is not what I think any of us want the message to be. This isn't a matter of blaming you or, or that it's your fault. And I'm the first to be all over anybody who implies that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, but understanding our bodies from any health perspective, it doesn't seem like a large percentage of traditional medicine embraces that. You know, they're not based on educating patients. They yeah, really good point. 
Yeah. You know, so, and you know, and I think that's what's so beautiful about your book is that it really breaks it down. And and one mm. of the things that I think that um, that your book does is it's very approachable. It's very readable. You don't have to have a science degree to understand it, which obviously was your intention, as, as opposed to some of these things that you read. Right. 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 You know? yeah. I mean, if you're you're trying to figure out cancer treatment, I don't think you you know want to go look up PubMed articles, right, um, right. you know. But um, but it's but I think one of the things that this does is um, I, I'm always saying that getting a cancer diagnosis is uh, the most disempowering experience. You yeah. feel like your body has betrayed you and you don't know what to believe in anymore. And I mm -hmm. think when we talk about the things that you're talking about in your book, the terrain and, and the things that we can address, if nothing else gives you that sense of, of relationship to your body back. And I think that's what gets stripped away in a diagnosis. Oh my gosh, so much. And, you know, I think I, I, I've said this on some other interviews before, but I think it's worth repeating in that so many people I've talked to who have this diagnosis, whatever, a tissue type, you know, it's, to me, cancer is a process and it's not a tissue centric process, right? Um, but basically, they'll say, gosh, I was healthy until I had cancer. And so back to your point of people being in up, you know, uh, up in arms about blaming the, the person who got cancer on blaming themselves, that isn't the case. The, the case is that there are a lot of cause and effect out there and you don't know until you know. Right. And so there is no blame, but like, if you're still like, I'm going to use this as an example, if you're still using dryer sheets after you learn that they're probably the most toxic, um, endocrine disrupting chemical that you can utilize just because you want your stuff to be soft and smell good, you are knowingly actively participating in adding a harmful substance to your body that is making it challenging to overcome your diagnosis, especially if you're doing everything in your power to take pharmaceuticals to block hormones, um, then to take on something like a dryer sheet, which is going to keep aggravating and making that more challenging. That's just one tiny example. So right. once people learn, well, I should probably be more thoughtful about what I put on in and around my body. I really should be a little more thoughtful about what my, um, my, my, my neighbors or my, my city is doing to my water source or my, you know, spraying around me. These are the things that have been sort of insidious to our culture over the last 50 to 75 to hundred years that never existed before in human existence. And so we've just been kind of that analogy of a, of a lobster, you know, put into a cold pot of water and the heat turned up. Yes. This is what we're starting to see is the water's boiling now, folks, and we got to do something about it. And so that's where I'm like, my, my hope is the book helps people understand how to turn the heat down in the water and start to actually maybe filter the water. <laughs> maybe then Right. crawl out of the pot of water right. into a exactly. fresh, you know, environment. That's the essence of what I'm trying to empower people with. So it's not a blame like, oh gosh, I did this to myself with, you know, um, Avon products, you know, like that's not what I'm trying to articulate. I'm trying to articulate. Now you know that some things in nature didn't exist until the last few decades that our bodies can't adapt to, can't overcome. So not sure, like mostly, again, just to reiterate that I'm trying to empower people that you, you really can make a difference for what you choose to put on in and around your body. And that includes the relationships that you cultivate around you, the environments that you go to school in or go to work in or can, you know, convene in with your loved ones, these are important aspects of what gives us health or takes away from our health. And as Dr. Mina Bissell describes, like the Petri dish 
you know, of what we put those cells into, what's around in that Petri dish is actually what is having a bigger impact on how those cancer cells are responding versus the cancer cells themselves. And so that's what the whole concept of the terrain 10, think of that as just being what is in your Petri dish and how it's impacting. Right. I've been really fortunate to have some really dynamic leading experts in all of these. Uh, either I've interviewed them or I, I have plans to interview them. And in a couple of weeks, I'm having um, a, a woman that is a toxin geek and expert. Yes. Come on. Good. Perfect. You know, and, and going back to that blame thing, I mean, the, the first thing I ever heard her say is that since World War II, we're, you know, there's an estimate. They don't even know because it's not regulated or monitored, but we're exposed to 85,000 to 200 thousand toxins that we were never exposed to before. And that's not because people are out. I mean, we know that things like cigarette smoking and yeah, yeah. some basics, um, yeah. you know, we know those are toxins, but we're talking about what's coming through your water, you know, yeah. Teflon lining in your cookware, air fresheners, the new car smell is just that particular blend of toxic chemicals that you're breathing in. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we're, it, it, it's actually at the point where we can't get all of our toxic burden out of our lives. We can just be more mindful. Absolutely. Conscious where we can be, and you're going to fall in a range there. But these are the kind of things I don't think it's a matter of blaming, but as you said, but educating. Totally. You know, I mean, I educate people, and you know, they don't know that one of the simplest things you can do is just get a good water filter. Seriously, um, perfect. Yeah. And it's not, I really want to bring that home because many conventional practitioners are really resistant to this, medic, this information. Yeah. Many are opening up to it, but there's, there's just such resistance. And and my concern is that it leaves patients confused. Like, who do I listen to? What's, what's the truth? And what do I do? And, and, you know, as I said, I think as you can educate yourself and become aware of these things, understanding the effects biochemically that stress is bad for you because it drives yeah. cortisol Great. and sitting down and breathing doesn't mean that, you know, you can't go to your next treatment, you know, because you practice a breathing exercise every day, <laughs> you know, but understanding so it's not an either or thing. If you're in the midst of this, many of, many of the things that, that we're talking about can support you through the process, totally. help reduce the side effects of treatment, because I think pretty much everyone knows that treatment has unfortunate side effects you know, leaves you with deficits. And so whether you embrace this and replace everything, but, but integrate the two in the way that makes sense for you and that you can manage. But um, I really want to focus on what the 10 terrains are that you talk about so that people can have an idea what we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. So um, after 20, almost 27 years of exploring this for myself and tens of thousands of patients, I found kind of 10 basic patterns um, or 10 basic uh, things that are affecting our Petri dish, okay, affecting our our terrain. And those things, I I kind of liken it to um, think of kind of a tree analogy, okay? So think of the canopy of that tree is our epigenetics, Okay, these are the things that have been passed down from us, information passed down through our epigenome from our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents up as far as 14, you know, 14 levels ahead of us. So that's a pretty profound thought process. And that includes what they experienced from famines to, to, to wars to, there's a, a study that came out last year about what your father ate before you were conceived has an impact on your epigenetic expression. So we are now knowing that sort of the, the, the sins, quote unquote, of our, of our ancestors impact us. Now, the cool thing about epigenetics is it is not static. It is not in cement. It is dynamic and our our choices, our diet and lifestyle are the only ways we can change our epigenome, change our epigenetic expression. So even if you were dealt a bad deck of 
bad a hand of cards this lifetime, how you play them is up to you. That's a really empowering concept. So that's the canopy of the tree. What that tree grows out of is the soil, okay? That is the microbiome. All right. And this, again, oh my gosh, as a naturopathic doctor who we are pretty obsessed with poop and everything that we need and digest. it a little bit, a little bit. Um, it's the first thing my patients or my clients yeah. say to me when they come in is like, how many times I'm like, hey, you know, we have to train, you know, but as a nurse, we, we ask everybody. <laughs> I, exactly. It's like, you're not special. We like to know about your poop from everyone. So but that's something where, oh my gosh, when I was learning about this in my own life and growing up in school, et cetera, it was really unheard of in the conventional medical community. And today, the microbiome, every time you pick up a medical journal or if you are looking through PubMed studies, literally probably 30 good studies a week are coming out on our microbiome's impact on pretty much everything. You know, 80% of our immune system is happening in our gut thanks to our microbiome. In fact, we now know that our, our particular balance of our, the organisms in our gut make or break your response to any conventional treatment. How big of a deal is that, right? right? So that soil, what you choose to amend your soil with, or what you choose to put into the soil, or even pluck out weeding of the soil is going to have a huge impact on your immune system, on your emotional system, because we also have 80% of our serotonin is being made in your gut as well versus in the brain. And so there's a lot going on in that microbiome. And of course, we have the microbiome on every surface of our body and being and in every single orifice. And even once you start to cohabitate with another person, your microbiome start to merge, including with your dogs, you know, things like that is, this is a big deal. So even the environment in which you live affects your microbiome. So if you're living with someone else who's not tending their inner garden very well, you may be aligning, unfortunately, with theirs. So it's a group effort to enhance your terrain as well. I want people to have that perspective too. Then what that's great to hear. Isn't that? That's, that's it's interesting, right? You hear very often. That's a really exactly. So if you're like making out with the person who's still living off Burger King, you know, and covering their body in um, endocrine disrupting body products and under immense stress because they hate their jobs and you're going to bed with that on a regular basis, yeah. your body is emerging, is completely merging with their exposures as well. That's a really weird, heady thing to think about, but it's just truth. It's, we can tell with people like Viome and Ubiome and some of the testing that if you run the tests on your whole household, I've sent off the testing from my dogs and my husband and I just for poos and giggles. And we sure enough have a lot more organisms in common right. than and the balance of our organisms in common than not. And that's wow. just cohabitation. Right. right? So right. things, think about that cool thought. Well, I, I have to say that. I've also read, um, <laughs> well, there's two things that uh, they've also actually done studies that like, people who are together for decades, married couples begin to look like each other. Oh God. You oh know? yeah. And, um, and, I, <laughs> I, and I was really aware of this recently with Barbara Bush and I've personally experienced oh, yeah. this where, where a couple that has been together for like 50 years, I, I actually in my career worked on a floor where the, mm -hmm. the husband who was healthy rented out the room next to his wife who was dying of cancer. Oh, wow. And he was healthy. There was, you know, he yeah. just wanted to be there. She died and 24 hours later he died. You know, and I mean, so, so this synchronicity between people yeah. that you live with and that you're intimate with is a really powerful, never spoken of peace, you know, yeah. to, for people to really understand. So once uh, in terms of your relationships, one of the things relationships uh, yeah. undergo Tremendous change is not always for the better during a diagnosis, treatment, and recovery, but, but even if a relationship ends, 
not that it's not painful, but maybe at a point in time, it's like maybe you can at a point in time begin to see where maybe that supported you in your recovery or health if it was a toxic relationship. Yeah, interesting, right? And so those are the, these are the, of course, what I'm always thinking about. I'm always grooving out on these other tangents, but it's really important to take that. I love it because it's important to take those into account because we do, you know, someone can say I did everything right, but if they're still living in a toxic environment, um, it's hard to, you know, your body's responding to that. And so that sort of segues into, well, what's growing out of that soil? We talked about the canopy. Now let's talk about the trunk. And the trunk to me is probably one of the most important pieces, which you are so divine at working with, which is the mind body aspect of this. This is the mind, the, the emotional body, the mental health aspect, because that is what is connecting heaven to earth. That's what's connecting the canopy to the soil is our thought process and the way we you know, move our emotions, move our mental health through the building, if you will. That makes a big difference. Luckily, we have tons of studies like IgA levels, which are our immune system. One argument with your, with your partner can shut off your IgA for up to you know 48 hours, which is wow. your immune system, right? I mean, right. we've got cool studies. My focus in um, undergrad was psychoneuroimmunology. Right. Um, it was part of how I started to heal is to re- recognize how much my trauma, my mental, emotional body was impacting my physiology, my immune system, my overall physical health, and that you cannot separate the two out. And just like a trunk of a tree, you can't separate that from the canopy, nor can you separate that from the soil. Right. Right. And that's like your gift of all to share and, and keep that message going out there in the world. And then off of the, that trunk are the seven other branches that include things like our, our blood sugar balance, right? Our metabolism. That's a biggie. That's a big foundation. That's one of the ways that we nourish the trunk, nourish the soil and change the canopy, right? In a really, really profound way. Um, the other things that come out of that are hormone balance, right? Now, just even sugar, so elevated insulin, elevated glucose um, will impact our estrogen levels as well, drives estrogen dominance um, when we have a high sugar intake as well. Then from that, we talk about things like our circadian rhythm and our stress response patterns. Cortisol, as you've also mentioned on your shows, also drives estrogen dominance. So again, we might be talking about, oh, you've got problems with estrogen, but it's like, well, what's the draw? Is it because you've got toxicants from the environment? That's a fourth branch coming into this. Is it because you're drinking? eating too much sugar? Is it because you took exogenous hormones for a long time or you're still drinking the water source and you're drinking everyone else's hormone, you know, laden pee from your city water source? Lots of causes of where you could have your dominance coming from. And the fifth one, inflammation, holy cow, big driver. The sixth one, immune function and that balance. And again, we talked about how that even uh, correlates to your gut health. And the final one, I am blank. Oh, angiogenesis, which is right. the circulatory system, the, the flow of blood um, and oxygen through the tissues. And when we have an area that is deprived of oxygen, we will send all these other blood vessels to it with maybe the wrong kind of nutrients. And that creates what we call angiogenesis in the unhealthy way, um, which can uh, be sequestered by the tumor process. And so those are kind of the big things for people to understand that we're just kind of a living dynamic organism coming out of the soil, the trunk meeting up with the canopy and the seven branches that are coming off of that. And if you trim any part of that tree or you harm any part of that tree or you nourish any part of that tree, you're going to impact the whole. So you cannot disregard any one of those components of the canopy, the soil, the trunk, and the the limbs um, and be healthy. You have to be addressing the whole organism all the time. 
I wanted to highlight a few things for our listeners to understand kind of the basis. Dr. Winters and I are both subscribed to the theory that that cancer is not something that happens overnight. It is actually a metabolic process that takes um, somewhere between five and 10 years. It starts microscopically, excuse me, my speaking today is a challenge. You got it. (laughs) Microscopically and then grows and grows and grows. And I think even, you know, the most can get that concept for a cell to grow. They need certain nutrients, certain environments for healthy cells to grow, but also for cancer cells to grow. And that process happens over five to 10 years. And then at some point in time, it grows to be the size that you feel it as a mass or it can be detected by imaging. And then that's when you've got the diagnosis. And that's where our medical system is. I I refer to it as whack-a-mole. It's it's like, here's, here's the symptoms. We've got to get rid of that. And that's what surgery, radiation, and chemo does. But it's only one part of this process. What you've just been describing is the blood supply and the nutrients that, that that cell has had to have to grow, you absolutely can influence that. And yeah. too often, I think when nutrition comes up, which is like the big kahuna, which, you know, yeah. I can't believe not only how many people are saying it doesn't matter, but then you get all these people that come up with these wacky plans. Dogmatic on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. You know, the big kahuna. It's not a simple question of like, does your nutrition cause cancer or kill cancer? It's not a blaming game. It's the fact that your nutrition affects how your body operates, the nutrients you have access to, and how your body either has healthy processes or unhealthy processes. And not just cancer, but diabetes, arthritis, you know, heart disease, stroke, all of these things. Medicine has managed to figure out how to talk about that superficially with other illnesses, but they're so resistant to um, talking about it in terms of cancer. We know, I mean, I've actually talked to doctors who will argue with me that nutrition has anything to do with diabetes. And I think most people get that memo, you know? So to, to, to get them to say that it might be related to cancer is like, you know, rocket science. It's like, they're yeah. still arguing about whether carbohydrates affect your blood glucose. I mean, seriously. So, um, so I want to make sure that we get this in here because in your terrain module and in what you talk about, I know that you are also a leading speaker and advocate for the ketogenic diet. Right. And um, I will have to say it was not until I found your work and the work of Miriam Kalamian, Kalamian, I'm sorry, that um, it really made me re-look at ketogenic diet because I am not a fan of fad diets. And if there's a diet right now that's so, the big fad, it's ketogenic and everybody's jumping on that bandwagon. But what I know you're the expert, one of the experts in speaking about is therapeutic ketogenic diets as opposed to just another bad diet to lose weight. So, and I know that uh, by the time this episode airs, you will have been part of the Keno Summit, but that's actually going on next week and you're a speaker. So I really want to make sure we have some time for you to really talk about why you're a proponent of that particular nutrition plan in the face of dealing with the experience of cancer. And actually, I, I love that you brought up this question because I'm starting to learn how I need because I know how my brain thinks about it. And I know what I'm trying to articulate in the book and what I'm articulating with patients one-on-one, but I'm starting to understand, have a better language skill set around this. So yeah. what I'm, I'm starting to explain to people is I'm not talking about a diet I am talking about a metabolic process. And um, I use the terminology ketosis or ketogenic diet because it is a 
fuel source. It is a metabolic state that we have gotten very far away from in the last 150 years or so. Basically, since we started milling carbohydrates um, out the wazoo in the 1850s, when we started processing flour and sugar, up until then, we were all in natural nutritional ketosis in and out, deeper seasonally, depending on what was available to us. Um, we just didn't have access to the 7-Eleven 24-7, 365, right? Like Starbucks. <laughs> exactly. The Starbucks. Oh my God, the 450, you know, uh, grams of sugar, Starbucks beverage, you know, on a daily infusion basis. Right. Here's, you know, the, here's the cave and here's... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We weren't being exposed to all the light um, pollution that also affects our blood sugar metabolism. Our insulin goes up at night if we're exposed to blue light. Um, if we aren't sleeping well, we go into circadian rhythm problems, which also affects our metabolism. That's why none of these things, you know, it drives me crazy when I hear people starting to get into pissing matches around um, diets. And of course, when people hear ketogenic, they're immediately thinking Atkins and they're immediately thinking meat on meat on meat. I mean, I have loads of patients, myself included, who don't really do meat per se. I do now. I was a vegan for seven years and vegetarian for almost 25 years. Um, um, and tried to work that diet for me for a long time. Dogma does not drive my approach to nutrition. Body response, physiologic response, epigenetic response, and the blood testing alerts me to how to get someone into a very efficient, mitochondrial, metabolic burning state, and you do whatever it takes to get you there. Right. So sometimes that means eating a very high nutrient quality, high fat diet that is actually low protein. And again, quality is key with a ton of vegetables. My approach with ketosis is still a plant-based diet. Okay. That can throw some people off. My approach is based on what that person's body needs to be a beautiful hybrid burning engine. Okay. Our, our mitochondria, are our source of ATP, our source of energy, and it can run on two energy sources, carbohydrates or fats, plain and simple. And for millennia, we were a dual hybrid engine. Okay. We were like a little Prius out there right. doing things. So like I said, since about the 1850s, we've gotten away and we are now mostly carb burners. Okay. Um, sugar burners. And that is where we get into the metabolic mud. Okay. That's where you see cardiovascular disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, um, Alzheimer's, even down into the ADD, like any of the spectrum, neurological disease, as well as cancer. Okay. This is metabolic muckiness. And that's because of the meta of that burn. So that's where I'm trying to convey to people. It's not so much a diet as a state of being right. is where I'm trying to approach. And, and I can get people there from simply fasting. I can get people there um, going hundred percent, you know, vegetable based matter. Um, most vegan diets are still too high in carbohydrates. So it's challenging sometimes to meet those needs, but if you are willing to take in the occasional egg or the occasional bone broth or the occasional, um, you know, like maybe quality whole cream or butter or ghee, we can often still work with those. So it's, that still keeps them a little bit in the more of the vegetarian spectrum. Um, you can do it, but it's hard. I know because I've tried it for myself and I've tried it for hundreds of other patients. Um, I've been able to do it successfully with vegetarians, um, vegans not as successfully. Um, but ultimately, if I have a vegan, I'm fasting them quite a lot. To to help them get into that metabolic state. So right. um, the caloric restriction component can really be a good avenue. So I'm wanting people to hear that we can meet your body where it is, but I just caution folks to get out of their own way. And I want to encourage folks to get out of the dogma and I want them to 
listen to the wisdom of their bodies, their epigenetics, their circumstances, the availability of quality nutrient-dense food, the season in which they're eating these foods, and then work with someone who can use that data, if you will, to manipulate the metabolic response in the body and adjust accordingly. Because if someone's like, oh, I'm now on a therapeutic ketosis and I'm staying there, well, that isn't ever happened in nature either. Neither did a, a vegan diet has never happened in human evolution, nor has a constant state of therapeutic ketosis. Right. So both ends of the spectrum are just as wackadoodle as the other. You've got to find the, the, the focus that happens best for that patient at any given moment. And so um, coming into that, you know, the book, we go into kind of the basics is you still have to start somewhere in the conversation and the education, but ultimately we let the labs guide the show and how the patient feels and what their res results are depending on their scans and their other follow-up markers. So, you know, we just, it, there isn't a one way. I guess I want to drive that matter home. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the other things that I, I, I love the way that uh, you spoke about the challenge being about how to have the language to have this conversation with like a, a client who maybe doesn't have a medical background. Cause I'm always struggling with that because yeah. I, I really do think, and, and it comes from doctors as well as uh, alternative practitioners that it's a very black and white kind of thing. And, and yet what you and I are, both proponents of is very individualized um, mm -hmm. programs because a ketogenic, you know, for some women, um, it doesn't support their hormones well. So they need to, you know, they may need um, some variations and have some more complex carbohydrates depending on what they're dealing with. But I find that um, what most people understand about diets including mm -hmm. doctors, yeah. um, is that they, they understand it through the lens of weight loss. That's the only way yeah. they never right understood on. nutrition. Yeah. Totally. And not yeah. what it does to you and, you know, or you know, how it affects you physically. It's just about weight. And that's not based in nutrition. That's just based in diet plans. So one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of diets. So the other side of a ketogenic diet is that it takes work. I mean, it really is something you have to understand. People have varying desires to embrace that uh, or ability to embrace that but um but just making i love that you, you talked about it in your book that there's three different places to plug into this conversation about nutrition yeah. And the first one is just kind of like getting away from the bad things. Yeah, get, the crap. And, yeah. get to the real and, food. <laughs> and, flour and, you know, the pastries. And I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue with you that we know pastries do not have nutritional value. They taste good. So that's one level. And so, so if, you know, I can get somebody or you can get somebody, you know, looking at their quality of protein or whether or not they're eating food that is yeah. yeah. Sides, which is the main yeah. benefit of organic. It's not a right. moral issue with me. It's whether or not it's covered in poison. Thank um, you. <laughs> you know, I, what a novel idea, Deborah. <laughs> you know, food is not a moral issue. Okay, uh, seriously, food and weight is not a moral issue. Um, you know, but but you know, for someone, you know, and I know one of the things that comes up with people who are actively in treatment is they have food challenges. Your whole yeah. digestive system, your whole body is trashed. Yeah. So maybe the only thing you can eat are these simple carbohydrates. Okay, so maybe during that time of treatment, if that's all you can tolerate, but that's only a stage, you know, later on yeah, down, that's a good point. Yeah. down the process, then we can revisit it. It's not about blaming somebody if the only thing you can eat is ice cream, you know, okay. 
But, you know, but doctors will approach that, well, you know, you need to gain weight at whatever cost. And that's equally as limiting. I loved in the book you talked about there are three places to plug in, you know, and one of them is understanding nutrition and understanding nutrition from a bigger lens than just what it's going to do to affect your weight. And and then you can talk about the others. Uh, There's a range leading from that, cleaning up trans fats, getting healthy nutrients in your diet up to having a therapeutic intervention like a ketogenic or or paleo diet, which Mm -hmm. does take more work, which is going to be influenced by where people are at emotionally and physically. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love in the book, that was the one thing that I went to because I am so anti-diet for this very reason. And I, I remember I, I've actually personally gone through um, uh, gastric surgery. I had a band yeah. many years ago. They made me go to one nutrition class. You oh, know, my gosh. I'm like, great. And so it, it, literally I was at the nutrition class and, and in, in the whole gastric surgery world, they really recommend a high protein, low carbohydrate diet. And this man was in the class that was going to have surgery the next day. Mm. Yeah, he was going to have a bypass. He said she was holding up a, a, an egg. And he said, now, is an egg a protein or carbohydrate? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking, dude... <laughs> You know, this is such a major life thing that, that, you know, sort of like some of the, you know, ketogenic diet, you need to educate yourself. And if you're at the point that you don't know that an egg is a protein and that cornflakes is a carbohydrate, you need some more education before you make this life altering decision. But, you know, that was when I understood that like the average person, what they understand about nutrition is so different than, than what you or I teach that sometimes just teaching people that simple carbohydrates affect you in unhealthy ways. It's just a new concept to people. So it's not like, I don't want people to go from this saying, oh my God, I've got to go out and go on a ketogenic diet. That's not what we're saying. There's different ways to plug into your knowledge and empowerment around nutrition and using nutrition for therapeutic reasons. And we've got to get out of this diet mentality. Totally. And you know, I mean, keeping it simple, think about what were your grandparents and great grandparents eating? It didn't come in a box, a can. It didn't come in a package right? It didn't have fillers. It didn't have things you couldn't uh, uh, pronounce. You know, it was from the source, as close to the source as possible. Did, did it come out of a tree? Did it come out of a bush? Did it come out of the ground? Did it fall out of the sky? Did it come out of water? Did it get, you know, run across land? Like the, that's what we ate. That is what we had access to. Right. So people think I'm a nut job for telling them to go back to eating what we have been eating for millennia, yes. which is just frankly, real food, okay, as close to the original source as possible. Let's not even get into the, which, you know, the macronutrient concepts of it. Let's just talk about the real stuff. So the simplest place to start for everybody on this planet would be to get back to real food and throw away your packages, you know, and, and especially if something contains more than five ingredients, and if you cannot personally pronounce it, stop eating it, right? Very basic. Like that's the kindergarten aspect that I tell people. And that alone can make a huge difference. And you'd be amazed at how many folks I work with that don't even, they've never even considered that uh, option. So that is definitely that phase. And then you can take it deeper of, okay, well now maybe start to limit certain starchy carbohydrate rich foods and keep your focus still on the, uh, the lower glycemic vegetables. So kind of what grows above ground are the lower glycemic vegetables. 
Right. Really enhance that. I love Terry Wall's um, work around the concept of nine cups of vegetables a day. So right. three leafy green, three cups cups of colorful vegetables, three cups of cruciferous vegetables. Those might cross pollinate a bit. A lot of people look at me like I'm crazy when I say eat nine to you know fifteen cups of vegetables a day. You, you know, have you taken like a dry pile of spinach? You can get like five cups of spinach right there, throw it in your saute pan, cook it up, and it's like two tablespoons. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> that is yeah. so five cups of spinach, right? So people are like, right. oh, like they get excited like to realize, oh yeah, it wilts down, right? When the when it smushes down, it's it's definitely manageable. So I tell people like load in wherever you're having a meal, make sure there's a vegetable attached to it. Right. Um, it's amazing how easy that strategy is. That's kind of the second tier. And then the third tier is when you do need to, to strongly, aggressively change a metabolic process. And that is where you need to be worrying about your macronutrient intake. And that may be somewhere from 70 to 90% of your diet as quality fat source, and then 10 to 15% of protein, and then the residual less than 5% to your carbohydrates. That is where we can literally turn the fire off on a, on a, on a house engulfed in flames for many different metabolic cancer types. Right. And do it very aggressively. And cool thing about it is we think of a ketogenic diet as just starving glucose. Those 10 hallmarks of cancer we were alluding to earlier, every single one of those hallmarks of cancer are impacted directly by being in a state of ketosis. Right. Right. Uh, directly. Like you cannot argue that it's an HDAC, in, uh, HDAC inhibitor, which is about its effect on the epigenome, that it definitely low, stops cancer cell proliferation, that it definitely stops apoptosis, you know, induces apoptosis, that it definitely impacts angiogenesis. You know, going through that list, it is very powerful. And the coolest thing is it enhances your conventional interventions. Right. So if you're coming to somebody like me before you start chemo or radiation or surgery and we can get you into a therapeutic state of ketosis, we will enhance your outcomes so much more than if you come to me midstream and try and implement it, which is going to be more challenging because of what you just said. You know, it's like really hard to do this while you're puking your guts out. Um, no, and or so you might have to forego it and clean up the terrain with it afterwards for a period of time. But you know, one thing that's never talked about in the conventional community is that your cells, your cancer cells are desensitized to your conventional therapies. Not from right chemo radiation. Guess what? Tamoxifen, you know, serms, the AIs, they do not work, nor do things like PARP inhibitors work if you still are dealing with an insulin resistance process. And so you can actually enhance your response to all those therapies. They sensitize the cancer cell to the effect of those treatments with just being in, a st- in that metabolic state. And even if you start it after the fact, because you go for wherever you pick up, it's never too late, you will enhance the outcomes of those therapies and you will also enhance your prevention of recurrence um, in a pretty profound way. And that means you don't have to stay in that place of deep ketosis to get those benefits, but you certainly can start to train your body to be that hybrid en- engine again that it was destined to be, that we were built to move from. Right, right. You know, and, and I think that um, that's the thing, you know, that I really, when I talk to doctors, I try to get through to them is, um, you know, I'm not trying to take away your treatments that you're trained in and you trust, but key supplements, there are key nutrients, curcumin. I'm a yep. big curcumin fan. You know, there's, 
there's plenty of research that shows that curcumin beforehand has benefits in the midst of treatment makes your body more receptive. So perhaps this is a key thing. You still might choose to do chemotherapy, but you may need less of it because your your body is better responding to lower doses. What a wonderful thing in terms of like the long-term side effects. And then afterwards, it's a great anti-inflammatory. So once again, it's that integrated approach. It's not that all medicine is bad and everything alternative is good. They can really work together. And, you know, this, this, this whole thing, it, it, it's just, is nutrition going to cure me or is it going to give me cancer? I mean, it's, it's just not that uh, black and white. And, and, I, and I, I, I think that's the beauty of your book is that it, it really talks about these. I, I refer to the whack-a-mole system. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, in terms of um, long-term management, really the, the standard, once you have rung the chemo bell and you've made your decision about whatever hormone blocking drugs they think you should take. In my case, like I've had a bilateral mastectomy. So if you're if if you've had a bilateral mastectomy, they can't do mammograms because there's nothing to mammograms. Right. Well then they keep trying to. <laughs> I've had doctors tell me and I'm I'm like, seriously, look at this. You know? So I, I actually asked one of my leading oncologists. She she said she gave me the prescription for 10 years and and then said, well come back in a year and we'll make sure you don't have symptoms. And I was like, well, what do I do between now and a year from now to make sure I don't have symptoms? Because that kind of thinking, that means there, if you have symptoms, that means the cancer's back. I want to interfere before the cancer comes back. I don't want to just wait and see if I have to go through this whole yes. thing again. And this leading oncologist in the Bay Area said, I, I've got nothing to offer you. Exactly. You know, and it's like, seriously, I mean, every cancer patient, if you've had to go through this, I mean, one of your top concerns is how to make sure you don't go through it again. So it's not blaming you for having cancer. It's empowering you to know that that these things that we're talking about can affect so many levels of growth and overgrowth and, and, and haywire cell growth that happens in cancer cells. That's where all of these things matter. You know, that's where the magic that happens. environment that you're talking yeah. about. Totally. That Petri dish is really key to you having a little more power, you know, in your, in your, um, you know, a little more, a little more control over what you put into that Petri dish is going to help you not be the statistic that the American Cancer Society says, which is 70%, that number sink in, seven zero percent of all people who've had an original cancer diagnosis will have a recurrence. WPF. Why are we not focusing on empowering that 70% to cut their risks down? Like that to me is malpractice that we are not having. Like that doctor was so clear and honest with you saying, I don't know what to offer. Well, then you certainly want to find someone who does. Right. (laughs) And start exploring whatever it is to prevent being that statistic. And, you know, I've done this long enough with patients that when I look at my overall process and I look at when I've had a patient that I'm seeing for the very first time who has their initial cancer diagnosis, I don't see a 70% recurrence rate in that population. In fact, I'd be surprised if I saw a 10% recurrence rate because I make them armed and dangerous to know what to do to change that Petri dish to not be that victim. Right. And so that's a pretty big difference. And no one's asking me out there in the medical system what I'm doing differently. But my patients are sure, you know, experiencing a different outcome, especially when they're um, watching their family and friends go through another diagnosis and another diagnosis and another diagnosis. And they're kind of like holding their breath, wondering when the other shoe's going to drop for them. And I'm like, 
it likely won't because you're working so hard, you know, um, at, at making sure that doesn't happen. We do not have to be, like you said, that sitting duck of waiting, you know, oh, we'll just keep watching. If symptoms come back, come in here. Oh my God, that is the worst advice. Right, right. That by <laughs> definition means you're waiting for the cancer to come back. Exactly. Like, oh my God, how could this have happened? I've already been through this ordeal. Yes. Yeah, you have. And you know, what you and I are doing, trying to teach people how to not have to keep going through that ordeal. You, you know? got it. You got it. And, and it's so much, like you said, it's, it doesn't have to be an either or because that strategy of prevention may include an aromatase inhibitor or a CIRM, or it may include regular scans, or it may include an ongoing targeted therapy. But those therapies in and of themselves, like a really good example I like to tell people is three main drivers of all breast cancer, since this is a pretty much you're speaking to a breast cancer crowd, right. is low vitamin D levels. Yes. Okay elevated insulin um, and insulin growth factor and a body fat index over 25%. Body fat index is very different than a BMI. So people need to get themselves caliper tested. Those three things are the main drivers of a first uh, cancer diagnosis as well as a recurrent cancer diagnosis. And so what ends up happening is that the treatments we put folks on, especially the hormone blocking therapies, guess what that does? lowers your vitamin D status, stimulates your insulin growth factor, and enhances, for most part, almost all women, get weight gain, you know, so it creates metabolic syndrome, it creates fatty fatty liver, we know that about CIRMs and AIs, and yet, when then women take it for five years or 10 years, and suddenly they stop, and then have an explosion of cancer later, all they were doing was feeding kindling to the process. If you were actively working on your terrain, even on those medications, you're going to make those medications work better for you and offset the side effects and offset the three drivers that got you to be on those medications to begin with. So it's an irony that we are not talking about this and it's not to diss the medical system. It's to say it's not enough as a standalone, just like in some situations, it's not enough as a standalone just to hit the terrain. You know, sometimes you need cytotoxic um, reduction. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I just went in for my yearly check, you know, and the the oncologist um, ordered some labs. And Mm -hmm. me being me, I ordered some additional labs. Yeah, good. good, (laughs) But when I got to him, he did not check vitamin D. And, you know, I I think in wrapping this up, I I also want to mention that every, you know, every once in a while, something breaks through from this um, integrative world that we live in to mainstream medicine. Yeah. And when I was told to raise my vitamin D levels into the 60s, that was by my mainstream medical doctor. That was not my alternative doctor, which I thought was, and I took that back to my plastic surgeon. He had never heard of that. I gave him the articles. So vitamin D is a hot topic. And I think that's one of the things that broke through. The nutrition thing peaks its head (laughs) and goes away. And actually what I've been reading about a lot in the last few weeks is the role of inflammation. Oh yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. In terms of, um, and surgery causes inflammation. So in a mainstream publication last week, they were saying, I don't agree with how they suggested dealing with inflammation, which was by taking it, um, Advil, but what you and I do, we help people deal with inflammation. So once again, that's another thing that broke through. So um, insulin is still a hit and miss. But you know, I, I go to see this doctor, and I said to him, he's like, I didn't order this vitamin D level. It's like, no, I did. You know, but but why didn't you? Because this is not new news. This has been out there for 10, 15 years. And there's plenty of research around it. He's like, oh, well, the insurance company doesn't pay for it anymore. Well, I can tell you it's a $17 test. So exactly. 
Yeah. Why don't you allow your patient to make that decision for themselves right. versus taking that, making that choice for them? Yeah. Not to mention I'm drafting a letter to the insurance companies as to why they're not covering something that nice. was a factor. Yeah. But he didn't, um, didn't check fasting insulin. He didn't check vitamin D. Um, and, but I'm not, and not to mention the more esoteric things that you and I can order about inflammation and IGF. These are things that can be measured in a regular lab draw. Yes. We're not talking about having to pay for advanced expensive testing. We're right. talking about getting, fasting insulin can be done, done when you get your CBC okay. and vitamin D should be done, you know, right. and, and so every, you know, I get encouraged when every once in a while these mm -hmm. things break through and then they act, the medical world is like, wow, what a novel idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm like, I don't care. Like yeah. when, it, when Oz says it is so, it is so, even if we've said it for 20 years. So <laughs> well, I think really interesting for our, for our listeners and, and please stay tuned because I'm going to be doing, I have some upcoming interviews around CBD oil, really? but you know, this, this whole thing has got such moral and legal things. But now that John Boehner has decided he can make a profit from it, this is going to all of a sudden hit mainstream. So, oh. and, and I say that because as our listeners are dealing with their practitioners, understand that your doctor's. It's also a responsibility of them to stay informed and educated. Not all doctors are created equal. Not all plumbers are created equal. Exactly. And also, a particular doctor may not be the most informed, may not be the person that they're not bad people. They just may not have access to the information or be interested in the information. So that's why contacting somebody like you or, or me, yeah. you know, I yeah. think the most important question to ask for a patient to ask their doctor is not, do you know about all of this, but are you open to working with a practitioner who does? Nailed you know, it. Are you, you know, I'll call a doctor and, and discuss my assessment and my plan with them and work with them. But if a doctor says they're not even open to that conversation, that's more of a red flag than that yeah. they don't know about these specific things. And nice. I'm sure it's the same with you. Totally. You know, ask your doctor, are you open to working with an integrative team and right. working with people who can bring these other concepts into yeah. the treatment plan? Exactly. In fact, that's in, my, in our book too, and the questions to ask your oncologist is exactly that. Are you, are you willing to work with an integrative team? And if they aren't, then that patient is really advised to find a different doctor. I mean, right. it's not, not because they don't have the information because right. we, all, we all don't know everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's their mental attitude. And the thing yeah. I talk about is the Marcus Welby kind of thing. Yeah. You know, Tarzan, you Jane, the patient, do what I say, not an attitude that I embrace, you know, no. but, um, <laughs> And, and what's your tush, my dear? Keep it up. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I, that was a phrase that I coined working with these doctors. You know, mm -hmm. there are doctors, I've worked with residents. I had one resident come out one night and he's like, I don't agree with what this nurse did, but I am not going to challenge her because I do not want the entire nursing staff torturing <laughs> my residents. <laughs> As opposed to doctors who come in and like, I'm Tarzan, you Jane, you do what I tell you. It's like, yeah, I don't roll that way. And, you know, but it's the same thing with patients. If your doc is not willing to have a conversation with you, your doctor is not willing to spend the time for you to ask questions. We're not talking about whether or not you take some, you know, alternative. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. If you, I have worked with women two years out of treatment when I ask them how I can help them. And they're like, I don't understand my initial pathology report. Wow. You know, yeah. you need that information. You, you cannot, it, it may emotionally feel so overwhelming that you want to stick your head in the sand and turn over responsibility to a 
practitioner, but unfortunately you can't. That's just a fantasy world. You know, so you need to be able to say, what is this medication? What is this treatment you're recommending? What is it going to do? What are the side effects? What can I expect? And are there any other options or any other practitioners to talk to to find out options? And if that answer from your oncology team is no, 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 just do what I tell you, that's a big red flag. Exactly. We, we've come too far and there are too many good ones out there to choose from today. Right. Where, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, that might not have been as much the case, but it's growing. And so now, and, and that hasn't happened because doctors are saying like, oh, today I want to learn this new information. It's because of you, the client, the patient is driving that change. And I encourage all of you to keep being the outspoken, you know, uh, pushing of the envelope to allow us to actually create the, the powerful bridge, the, the powerful um, communication that can happen that brings all of the best options to the table. We are no longer an era where we have to guess. We are no longer in an era where we have to just follow standard of care. Standard of care should be individualized precision medicine. Um, that should be standard of care, not you get this treatment and when you fail this treatment, then you come to this treatment. When you get this treatment and you fail it, you go to, and notice that they say you fail. They never really take ownership of that process. Um, we can actually be starting from the get-go with a bullseye approach versus a guessing game. And that is where I know in my lifetime this is going to change. I've already watched more change in the last three, four years than I had in the previous 20-plus years cumulative. So I'm extremely hopeful, extremely excited of where integrative oncology and medicine in general may be going thanks to the patient-driven movement. And I applaud all of you, um, you know, seekers and question askers and pain in the ass patients out there because you are the ones who will prevail, the ones that will survive and the ones that will change medicine for future generations. I'll, in, in terms of the closing, I'll tell you that one of my last doctors, and I've had many medical complications, one of my last doctors as he was leaving the room, he's like, you kind of scare me a little bit. <laughs> I was like, good, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, I want you on your toes. And because I'm going to be talking to, uh, for our guests, um, uh, my next interview is going to be with um, a cancer coach. And we're going to talk about this concept of standard of care. Because that means that patients do not, that is such a big issue. It basically means what doctors have to do to legally cover themselves. And it's not necessarily related to what you individually need, you know? And so that's a big issue that I think people need to understand. Um, But in terms of of, uh, contacting you, please let us know. Um, So once again, I want to mention the book. It's called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. It's from Chelsea Green Publishing, 2017. Dr. Winters co-authored this with Jess Higgins Kelly. Um, I'm going to have... a link on the show notes page, uh, as well as some of the other uh, references that you mentioned. But how else can people uh, find your work, find you, uh, learn about all the good stuff you're doing? Because I know you're presenting at conferences. You're you're just out there. Being I'm out there. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, I am out there. It's good. It's fun. It's been interesting. But you can find me on optimalterrainconsulting.com is my website. You can also find Optimal Terrain on a Facebook page for information um, that I'm always updating what I'm up to. Also, Jess and I have a Facebook page, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And we're also always trying to post events around our book as well as just updated articles and things that keep validating the information that we're constantly sharing with you in the book. Yeah, on my website as well, you'll likely see events that are coming up and also past podcasts, interviews, etc., which are um, a lot to listen to. Um, but there 
there's, there's a lot of resources out there. And I also try and link people to other good resources that inspire me um, on my site as well. So please go take a deep dive there. And Deborah, thank you so much for this opportunity today and for the work oh, you're you doing. Too. We talked about how there's likely some future projects with us in the future. Oh, oh my God, yes. I, I want to have you back. I mean, I this is it. the tip of the, the yes. iceberg. I mean, I, there's so much that we can talk about. And, um, and I, I think that the of us have been talking about this, but um, I think if there's one thing to do in the face of breast cancer, mm. it's just really learn to be your own advocate. Unfortunately, all too often, women, they take these medications, they have horrible side effects, and then they're like, my doctor's never told me. I, I, I don't mean that's in any blaming, shaming right. way whatsoever, right. but just empower yourself to be a partner in this process. And if, you're, if you live in a small town like I do, where there's only one oncologist, you know, yeah. um, there are resources online. There, you, there are many integrative oncologists, you know, like Dr. Winters and others. I'm, I know your schedule's busy. Yeah. I'm not throwing patients at yeah. you. But, you know, you can do phone consults with people. People can send medical records. I, I know a number of integrative oncologists who you can send records, they'll review it, and they'll give you a case review. Absolutely. You know, and point you in the uh, certain directions. That's what I've done for myself. I had consulted somebody in California. He reviewed it, told me what labs to get, you know, and, you know, that's what I do. I, I, I work mm. with people remotely, but sometimes what I offer is just that consult to figure out what's going to be best for you to do in terms of testing and then a follow-up to review that test. But then you can take that information back to your primary care team and say, this is what I want to look at. Once again, if your doctor is not open to that, that's a red flag. Yeah. You know, but many, many may very well be open to that. So, you know, you got to, got to give them a chance. Exactly. I think that's a good point too. So, well, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I love you. I love, I love you. you. <laughs> it was really fun. You're like, as I wish if people had been a fly on the wall in our, even our conversation before this. Oh, I know. I, I'm going to start recording them and, then, <laughs> and then do the outtakes. Cause I love it. Um, I love it. Yeah. Because there's, you know, there's so much. And, and um, I, I just think that, you know, just being such a, a positive voice and I'm always kind of tuned into the emotional response the, the fear and the overwhelm and the sense of hopelessness and doom Oof. is not good for your overall treatment. So if you do nothing else but just reach out to not be so isolated or confused or fearful or whatever, that's the first thing you can do for your health. And I know that you are responsive to that. I'm responsive to that. Totally. You know, we, we need to, you know, we need to advocate for ourselves, you know, because um, one last thing. Um, I hear people, I have women contact me all the time and they're, unfortunately, traditional doctors will not often refer them to someone like you or me yeah. until their late stage. And you have to talk about quality of life. Well, quality of life in a traditional doctor is a euphemism for you've got weeks to live, get your affairs in order. You and I talk about quality of life as something that should affect your decision every single day. Absolutely. You know, and and a long term, not a short term. <laughs> quality of life means that. And and it and it should be an issue in every treatment decision. And um unfortunately traditional doctors quality of life is usually End of life. A, a bad sign. And um that's you know that's why I hope that women can hear this, can feel like they can intervene long before they get to late stage. Because I know some doctors are like, well, we, we can't do anything else. So of course, I'll send you to that alternative practitioner. 
Right. You know, and we could be doing, there's so much we could do long before that ever comes. You got it. You got it. I'd love to be the first resort, not the last. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Uh, thank you so much. This is just wonderful. Just wonderful. And I will have you back. And, um, you know, for anybody listening, please, uh, please keep an eye out because um, I just think Dr. Winters has so much to share with us. As I said, I do have show notes that uh, you can access my website and as well as show notes and recording at uh, www.mindbodynutritionrn.com. Also there, I have a free guide uh, talking about the known and expected side effects of aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen so that you can be informed when you have that conversation with your doctor. I will have references on how to reach Dr. Winters. I will have links um, for her book and for the resources that she mentioned. Um, I am open to responding to emails. If you have any questions about anything we talked about today and you want to shoot me an email, I will respond. And if I don't have the answer, I'll find the answer for you. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of resources uh, uh, through Dr. Winters' website as well as my own. So I really encourage you to access that. Um, Also, in terms of the podcast world, which I'm less familiar with, it really helps if you subscribe and and do a rating and review. The geeks at um, Apple like that. That tells them something. So if uh, listeners can do that, that would be great. And um, I think that's good for today. And please stay tuned because I will definitely be having Dr. Winters back. I'm going to become her unofficial stalker. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good. (laughs) Right on. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.